It's been, um, well, it's been over four years since my family's come to church on a Sunday in Carpinteria. And my whole family's here. We have uh, two more kids than we did last time we were here. And it's a lot like uh, going uh, to grandma's house in a sense. Um, It's it's fun because there's so much similarity and there's so much uh, connection yeah, especially in worship and obviously in the teaching, we're, we're completely connected to the CARP campus in our, in our teaching. But just in seeing the faces and the people and uh, that, that, that vision and that sense that leadership had when we started the Ventura campus and, and uh, Britt explored that and explained that a little more when we started the Santa Barbara campus in relation to CARP really being like the little Bethlehem. You know, where, where Jesus came from and then going out. And um, so it's awesome to be back here. I'm, I was really excited uh, when I was invited to come back today. And um, it's been a- amazing. These last few weeks in particular um, have been extremely powerful. Um, I, can, I can testify just in relation uh, to the response of the body uh, directly to what the Holy Spirit is doing through the word that's being preached on Sunday. That the word is being received and it's going deep and people are changing and people are growing. And uh, I do a lot of marriage counseling. And so these last few weeks, we've seen just a, 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 a surge of couples wanting to come and just present and deal with their issues because they're convicted by God to change. Yeah, praise God. We've read and we've studied many verses on marriage in this passage in Ephesians 5. And today, I get to uh, dive into and and, and lead us through a passage that I think most married people in this room can relate to. And uh, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, where Paul says, "Uh, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32, that part that married people can relate to where he declares, this mystery is great. And and what a mystery it is. And um, as I meet with couples, uh, this passage excites me now that, that the Lord has brought us to this place, to this mystery Because I would guess that among the married people, even here in Carpinteria, uh, there are few among us that experience substantial joy and intimacy in the context of marriage. And I hope that that you've been convicted and and, and, and challenged to grow and to change in these last few weeks. And I'll confess on the outset before before we pray and get in that that, um, this is a hard and awkward passage for me to teach because I am still... Uh, in, in the beginning stages of learning this. I've only been married 18 and a half years and I feel like I'm just learning what it means to die to myself. And um, I, I did a, a funeral last year, this, this uh, um, older gentleman. And uh, during the testimonies where people came up to give testimony, his wife gets up and she says, in 50 years of marriage, he never once said a cross word to me. Never once, this is his wife saying this in front of everybody. I was just like gagging myself, like, are you even serious? But I, you know, because I'm selfish that way. But in, and so I confess that and share that. I share that because there's hope. And I confess that because I'm not there. So we're going to get into the word together. We're all in the same place. 
We want to look at marriage like I look at that beautiful marriage of that couple. When that gentleman passed away, I saw a picture of Jesus as his wife got up there and shared that testimony. And so this morning, we're going to work on this together. We're going to read the whole passage, and then we'll pray. Uh, We're going to start kind of in the middle of where Britt had us last week in verse 25. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and, the two shall be jo- and, sh- and he shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ And the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. This morning, as we approach your word and we approach this passage, We're deeply aware, each of us individually, of our inadequacies and our inability to do the things that your word tells us to do. On our own, we're not able to fake it. We're not able to muster that. And God, I present to you my heart, my sinful tendencies. Say, God, minister your word to our hearts today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us, you would teach us, that you would anoint your word, anoint my lips, God. We love you. The desire of our heart is to know you more, to experience you more, and to image you more in the world you've sent us to live in. And so, Christ, take your word and apply it to our hearts. We love you. We pray that everything we do would lift and glorify the name of Jesus above all else, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, in... The times that I've spent in counseling, I've come to realize that many Christians pursue happiness in marriage because many of us have this belief, this false belief, that God designed marriage uh, to make us happy. And many of us become preoccupied with following Christ to achieve fulfillment and enriching opportunities. It's the things in life that, that, that make us happy. And the results are that Christians, in our pursuit of joy and peace, become just like the world, who in the world, the the goal of people in the world is to pursue fulfillment. And the line gets blurred between the joy and the peace of God that is promised in Scripture, and the desire of our heart, and and the trajectory of our lives, as we pursue fulfillment over true joy. And what happens is many Christians seek fulfillment 
rather than joy. And, and it becomes this ethic, this sort of way of life that puts an emphasis on what makes me happy. So in marriage, when I'm not happy, there's a problem. So ha- since since ha- marriage is about fulfillment, because fulfillment is all about me being joy-filled and peace-filled and happiness, marriage, therefore, is about making me happy. So I become someone who tries to make myself happy in marriage. I become someone who tries to make my wife happy in marriage. And I'll tell you, after 18 and a half years, that is impossible for me to make myself happy in marriage and simultaneously make my wife happy in marriage. That is an impossibility. And I've heard this passage taught many times, and I'll confess to you that I've actually taught this passage a few times, and I've made a huge error and, and I believe culturally, we have a tendency to make a huge error in the way that we approach and, and the way that we teach through this passage. The error comes in verse 32. I'll read 31 again, just for the context. But this is how typically we read this passage. And think about all the times you've heard this, where Paul is, is, is quoting from Genesis, where he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. And then they step away, and they, and they finish the wedding ceremony, or they, they move on and start making points in a relationship seminar. But Paul continues, But I am speaking with reference to Christ, and the church. So there's this tendency to skip through the second half of verse 32, this, this part about the mystery. Because the rest of Ephesians 5 is, is like the go-to passage for marriage counseling. It's the go-to passage for weddings. It's the go-to passage for relationship seminars. Because Paul clearly lays out roles and responsibilities and, 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 and we, can, we can extrapolate from that and give tidy little three-point and five-point to-do lists to struggling couples based on what Paul says marriage is. We like the quick details. We like, we like to know what to do and what not to do. But our error is in handling this mystery. In church, we must get this. This, this is the crux of this entire section on relationships, the crux of this whole section that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in relation to marriage, all points to this mystery, this mysterious reality that somehow marriage is tied to Jesus and the church. And we often miss this profound mystery in an effort to fix marriage, in an effort to bring happiness and to bring uh, just functionality back into homes. We don't focus on this mystery. We just focus on the points that are easy to grab and hand to people. And so we often come to a place where when Paul says the two shall become one flesh, and I've heard this in, in many weddings, where, where it, it, it'll be explained that this mystery is great, and it's like it's mysterious how two people become one. And, you know, I'm married, and I'll, I'll admit that it is pretty mysterious. I haven't figured that out. But that's not what Paul is talking about. The mystery isn't that two people become one. The mystery is that when two people become one, somehow, in some profound way, we image Christ and his love for humanity. Paul says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. 
And the mystery is that this coming together of a husband and wife is pointing to something greater. That marriage points to Christ coming together with the church as one flesh. That we somehow become one with God through Christ. And marriage is a picture of this. So Paul is explaining here that marriage is a picture of something much greater than this relationship between two people. That there's something much bigger. And in church, we have to get this because it's vital for us to understand this as we look at our own marriages or as we prepare for marriage or as young singles, as you're praying about who, the, who God would call you to marry. Or maybe as if you're an older couple or you've got, you've got children who are married, as you're encouraging and speaking into marriage, we have to get this. Otherwise, we're not going to be encouraging We're not going to be growing. We're not going to be obediently walking in God's design for marriage. And so today, hopefully, I can show some biblical examples of this profound mystery to help us understand. If you have a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. The writer of Hebrews does does a a couple of really interesting things in in relation uh, to things on earth pointing to greater things. Um, How many of you guys have ever read the Old Testament? Okay, the Old Testament is awesome. I love reading the Old Testament. But I'll confess that there are sections that that just are very difficult. Okay, I'll leave it at that. And one of those sections is where, uh, you you know, it's like this this high point where it's like, okay, cool, God's going to give us instructions on how to build this temple. And then he starts talking about how to build this temple. And it goes on and on and on. Four cubits by nine cubits by 20. You know, I'm like, I don't even know what a cubit is. Like acacia wood and gold and silver. And and, and, and it's like this, this on and on. Chapter after chapter, these details, these specifications that God is just adamant. He's particular. He's insistent on how this thing should be built. Okay, and then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. The writer explains, saying it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, in talking about the temple, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the temple is a copy of something in heaven. This is why, why is God so particular about the materials and the dimensions? Because it's a copy of something. There's something in heaven. There's something about God and the way we approach God and and the presence of God that, that we can't see and we can't understand apart from these specifications and these materials and this atmosphere, this methodology of approaching him. And God is very specific about man setting that up. Why? So we can get a picture and an image of something heavenly here on earth. This idea of the holy of holies, the veil of separation, um, the idea of a sanctuary, Uh, the outer courts, how high the walls are, all of those details had a significance to God as God was very intentional, very particular, down to like the inches and the measurements of what this all should look like. The people of God were going to experience God here on earth. They had to somehow have a picture that they could connect with. And God paints this picture in the temple. It must be precise and exact 
or you won't see what God wants you to see. That's kind of his point. Same thing with the Old Testament sacrifices. Remember that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. But the Old Testament just goes on and on and on. And it's gnarly. It's like you rip the entrails out of the ark, you know, and, and the bull, you do this. And then the wave offering, and you take the guts, and you do this, and the blood. You take a, gut, a dove, and you do this. You take uh, grain, and you wave it. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer explains in, in, in the context of sacrifice. He says, for the law... Since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. God is saying, remember I had you bring animals to sacrifice? Remember how the blood covered your sins? He's like, those animals didn't pay for your sins. It's ridiculous to think that the blood of a cow could be exchanged for your sin, and you somehow would be holy. This is a picture The sacrificial system was a picture designed by God. It was a picture of something greater. It was a picture of a great mystery. This picture would have been extremely mysterious. And all of this pointed to the coming of a perfect sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says. Hundreds of years of blood sacrifices all pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The one final perfect sacrifice that would actually take away the guilt of their sins. It would actually remove the burden of sin. So the point today that I'm trying to make in all of of this is that just like the temple is a little model of something that's greater in heaven, and just like the sacrifice, the system of sacrifice and the method of sacrifice points to something much greater, much more profound, points to something that that has an immense high value in the same way that those two things point to something Paul explains that your marriage, that my marriage, that singles your Christian relationships, the union of a man and a woman coming together and becoming one flesh, all of this is just a picture of something far greater. God and I will become one. That the world sees a man loving his wife as Jesus loves the church, and they see for a moment the love of a God who stepped out of heaven, compelled by love, to give himself as a sacrifice for what he created. See, that's this picture that Paul is saying is mysterious, that our marriages point to the love of God. Somehow, I get to be one with God through Christ. Rotten little humans can become one with God, and marriage somehow reveals this. What an amazing thought. This is a a profound idea that Christ and his church would have this profound unity and become one flesh, just like a husband and a wife, he says. Have you thought about that? That, That when you're called to Christ and you receive that love of the Father, as you receive the love of the Father in the person and sacrifice of Jesus that you're actually made one flesh with God through Christ. That idea is, is 
It blows my mind to think of that level of intimacy. How often do we totally rip ourselves off and the world around us off by thinking much less of our call to God? We're not called to come to church on a Sunday. We're not called to just do better things with our life and change the words that come out of our mouths. We're called to be one flesh with the living God who created the universe. We're, we become one with God. It's, it's profound. And we must understand. Listen to me. You must understand this passage is not about your marriage. So if you're sitting there thinking, my marriage is jacked up, when's this guy going to give me something practical? Listen to me. Paul's not writing about your marriage. Paul's writing about Christ in his church, and he's saying, you have to get this. Because the love of God, through the power of the Spirit, as God anoints you and pours his Spirit out upon you, he gives you a new heart. And that's a heart that desires to submit to others around you. Why? Because Christ, as he submits to us, Christ came to the earth to serve and not be served. And so the love of God compels us to serve and to love others. And Paul is saying it's about experiencing and displaying a unity that reveals the unity Christ desires with his church. See, this is a profound call to intimacy with one another. Profound call to intimacy. It's a profound call to intimacy with Christ, with God through Christ. And it's a profound call to expose this intimacy, which is the gospel to the world. We're called to live this way so that people would see the love of God. They would literally see the love of, what is the love of God? The love of God is Jesus coming to the cross and dying for us. That people would see this. So your marriage is pointing to something greater, just like the temple is pointing to something greater, just like sacrifices were pointing to something greater. And this is why God is so particular about perfection in these matters. They image greater things. This is why Paul is going on and he's talking about specifics in marriage, not to give you a a to-do list, but for you to understand there's something great and magnificent about the love of God and you're not going to get it unless you do it in the way that God designed it to be done. How does someone with a sinful heart have any idea what the love of God is like? How can I say, you know what, I'll take those, those hints that God gives me about a good marriage. I'll extrapolate my own sort of way of doing it because it works for me. So we, we have no idea. Our marriage is pointing to something much greater. And Paul is saying, this, th- these are the roles. This is how it plays out. See, God demands a spotless animal for sacrifice. Young, healthy, perfect. Uh, the, the key here is valuable, very valuable sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrificial system and the sacrifices that were made all pointed to the nature of Christ. In Christ's sacrifice, God was letting the people of Israel experience how costly a sacrifice is. It was costly to have their sins taken care of. So God makes it a real sacrifice for the people. And you remember in the book of Malachi, if you have a Bible, turn to Malachi 1. I love this this passage. There there, there came a time when the people of Israel um, started bringing these crummy sacrifices to God. Right? They'd bring these like three-eyed, you know, three-legged, one-eyed, just mangy, nasty sheep. And they, and they think they're fooling God. Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. God says, 
This is the Lord speaking. How I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning until night. All around the world, they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of heaven's army. God's saying, don't bring that crummy old offering into my, in, into my sanctuary. He's like, just get out. Just shut the door and don't come back. It, you, you think you're fooling me? Get out of here. I deserve more than that. He's saying that if you're not going to worship me, there's people in the nations that are worshiping me. Christians, listen to this. You go to China. China is on fire for Jesus. People in China, people in India are literally laying down their life for the gospel. God would say to the American church, you you want to present some lame, poor, three-legged, one-eyed marriage to me? He's like, just shut the door. Come on. This is the sacrifice that I require. That you would submit yourself to one another. That you would wash your wife in the word. Because there are people that that will honor my name. What he's saying is these sacrifices don't bring me honor. And I'd rather you not bring them. Just shut the doors. Why does God care? Didn't he see how hard life was for them to bring an a, a, a animal without blemish in the prime of their life, ready to be fattened? I mean, just the, the value in that society of that sacrifice is unimaginable. Why? Why? Because it was a picture of the cost that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. Jesus was going to be the spotless one. Jesus was going to be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was in the prime of his life when he was laid on the altar. When he literally bled out like a sacrifice. Jesus embodied the the fullness, the completeness of a perfect sacrifice. So when priests brought in three-legged diseased creatures, God is disgusted with them. Why, Why would God be so disgusted? Because that paints a horrible picture of his son, Jesus. It's a mockery of Jesus when we bring a three-legged sheep into the altar, winking and nodding at one another, pretending like we're fooling God. Cheesy sacrifices are no picture for God's incredible generosity in his final sacrifice. And I thought about ways of of, of demonstrating this, and um, I'm going to throw my kids under the bus a little bit, but... uh, my son, is, is, he's a pretty good artist. He's eight now. But he drew this first picture when he was, I think, around four. And it's a picture of a race car. Okay. Now, who's going to bet money that that thing's going to win a race, right? Race cars are expensive. They're purpose-built. There's tons of engineering that go into them. Okay, the wheels aren't even the same size. The rims aren't the same size. You can't tell which side is the front or the back. It has like purple smoke coming out of a stick on one side of it. And like green smoke coming out the back. Like, it's no wonder that there's no sponsorship stickers on that race car, right? Okay, look at this next one. He was a little older when he drew this. I'm actually pretty proud of him for this one. Okay, fire truck, right? Okay, fire trucks are expensive and they're well-equipped. They're very purpose 
purpose-driven, purposeful. If you go by a fire station in the morning, every single shift, every single day, inventories and expects the fire truck, okay? Um, This fire truck looks like it needs a shave, right? (laughs) There's like a school bus door or a house door on the side of it. It's got this puny little ladder on the roof. The wheels aren't round, right? Like, if I knew that was going to come to my house, I wouldn't call 911, you know? And just because, like, I'd rather, almost rather burn to death than call that and be saved by it. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm joking that these, for my son and his age, these are good pictures. But do you see how they paint a horrible picture of a fire truck? Like, that, you know, yeah, if, if you have a lot of grace for kids, you can say, oh, he did such a good job. But if it's like, do you see how amazing these things are? Do you see how that could save your life? Be like, no, actually, I don't, you know? <laughs> these images created don't communicate the value and they don't communicate the worth of what they represent. And in the same way, if our marriages are supposed to paint a picture of Jesus Christ and his love for his bride, his love The love of the Father which compelled him to come to earth, to send his son, to die. This is the love that we image in marriage. If our marriages are supposed to paint a picture of Christ and his church, we can't afford to have crummy marriages, church. We can't afford to have misshapen wheels and and hairy lights, right? We can't afford to have like green exhaust, God hasn't called us to do a four-year-old's impression of his love. In our distorted, disobedient, self-focused, unhealthy marriages paint a distorted picture of Jesus and his love for his people. So do you see why this is so important? You see how Ephesians 5 isn't just a quick fix marriage passage. God isn't calling you to have a happy marriage so you can have happiness on earth. God isn't simply calling you to change some things so you could create a happy family, so you could just get along and have peace at home. We're involved in something much, much bigger here. There's something that's much bigger that's at stake than just the happiness and the sanity at your house. I'm supposed to show the world a picture of Jesus Christ by the way that I love my, lo- my wife. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Literally, that passage could be translated, love your wives exactly as Jesus loved the church. Why does he say exactly? Because you're painting a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And as Christians, we know how Christ gave himself up for the church because that's why we're Christians, right? That's how we became Christians. That's why we worship. That's that's how we know what true love is. The love of God through laying down the life of his son Jesus is how we're even able to understand and comprehend love. So this is why we love our wives in this way, to model this love for others. And this is a crazy model for us, this loving someone like Jesus loves us. It's, it's, it's insane to think about that, and it can be this burden for us. But this is why God gave us the Holy Spirit. 
This is why this passage is coming in the context of the spirit-led relationships. I often hear when I meet with couples, um, and, and I may not share this next week when I preach in Ventura because a lot of these people will be there, but like, <laughs> the woman will say, okay, I have to submit to him? Like, wait, seriously, right? Like, Billy, you know him, right? You're telling me to submit to him? We have the harder role here. What's going, why is this so unfair? And I, and I think to myself, I'm like, ah, oh, it's such a self-focused way of thinking. Like, okay, so all I have to do is love someone exactly like Christ loves them, right? And you somehow have the harder role? Like, it's, it's thinking about this relationship involves much more than just what we're able to muster and what we're able to bring to the table ourselves. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us what we need for these relationships. But see, he does this and he lays this out, this impossible call to love each other and submit to one another in this way. Because this is what leadership looks like. Men are told to lead and then they're told how to lead. They're they're told to lead like Jesus. You're the leader, right? Well, what has happened in traditional Christianity is men grab, I'm the leader, and they grab women submit, right? And they have all kinds of excuses for spending too much time at work, too much money on themselves, too much focus of the family on their comfort and having peace and quiet when they get home so the whole family can just not step on his toes and, and it becomes this form of man worship. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying here. That doesn't image Jesus. That, that's some weird dad cult thing. What image is Jesus? His dad comes home from work, frazzled, tired, burned out. And he sits in the driveway and he says, I want to display Christ to my children that are watching me like hawks. They're out in culture and Satan is doing everything he can to rob the image of God from their little minds. Satan is doing everything he can to, per- to pervert the definition of love that I've been trying to teach them. God, give me the grace, give me the strength to die as I walk in the front door and love my wife to lay my life down for her as Jesus laid his life down for me. That's the prayer of a man that is interested in demonstrating Christ, in displaying Christ. That's the man that Paul is talking about here. Men, that is how you are called to lead your wife. You want to be the leader at home? Die like Christ died. Leadership is a call to death. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus gets on his knees right before he dies. He's got hours left. Okay, you think about this. Jesus' strategy for the future was was insane. He had these guys that are quarreling about who's going to be greater. They have no idea what was happening. Jesus gets on his knees and he washes his feet, washes their feet, arguing with them the whole time, right? Then they finish and he says, go and do this. See, it's important that we see if we're going to lead like Jesus, we lead in foot washing. We lead in kneeling. We lead in serving. We lead in listening. And as he served, as Jesus is patiently listening to his quarreling disciples, as he's washing their feet, 
There was never any question about who was in leadership. There was never any question of who the leader was. Jesus was clearly the leader. Husbands, this is how we're to lead in our families, just as Jesus led. God is saying, this is the picture I want you to show the world. This is an accurate picture of Jesus and his love for humanity. I want you to love and give yourself to your wife because that's what Jesus did for the church. See, this love and giving yourself is right in line with our call to die to self. So single people out there, it's the same call that we're to love one another in Christian relationships as Christ loved the church. Christ is our image in which we, we walk. We're, we're to pursue Christ and the image of love, that Christ, the example that Christ set. This is how Christians are to live. That's why when we became a believer, we were baptized. That picture is, okay, I'm laying it all out. And then, and then we go through this, this, everyone's watching, and you're dunked underwater, symbolically dying. And then you come up out of the water raised in a new life. You're just, because Christ went ahead of you, you can now follow him and you're raised to this new life. That's why we get baptized. You're saying, I'm dead to myself and I'm rising out of this water to follow Jesus into this new life. I'm an imitator of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, that when I got married, I'm no longer Billy. I died when I was married. I became one flesh with my wife, Joe Ray. I became submitted to her in action and intention. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did for me. Jesus didn't come down from heaven to boss the church around, right? Jesus came to earth and served the church. Jesus gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. So this is why Paul says that husbands are to purify their wives, loving them as Christ loved his bride, washing them in the word. We're to be consumed with her holiness. My wife's holiness is to be my life's priority here. Wives submitting to respecting their husbands, reciprocating that love and that submission. And see, I'm I'm going into grave detail here because I meet with many couples who say this, exactly this. I, I get that, but in our family, what works is for her to lead. She's a, she's a more mature Christian. She's a type A personality. She leads every other thing in the church that she could possibly lead. She spends time in the word. I don't really do that. She's good with numbers, so she does the finances. And you know, what brings peace to our home and what, what, what makes it work in our household is for her to lead. It works for us. There's harmony. But you see that Paul isn't saying, hey, this is how to make your marriage work. This isn't about your marriage working. It's not about keeping peace at home. This is about painting a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. This is about sacrificing as Jesus sacrificed. If life was about making things work, if the purpose of the Bible was to help you make your life work, God wouldn't have been so particular and spent so much of the Old Testament explaining these details about the temple right? All you got to do is take the ark and chuck it in a barn. Hey, that works, right? Think about all the hassle. Think about all the expense that would have saved. Hey, rather than sacrificing sheep, you know what works? It's just whatever is available, you know, just sacrifice whatever's available. You can just bring mice and just chuck them on the altar or rats or whatever. 
But no, God didn't do that. They built the temple as a picture of something greater. God called them to make expensive, pure sacrifices because those sacrifices pointed to something greater. So you don't have the right, listen to me, Christian, you don't have the right to declare your wife the leader of your home. Because it's not about how your home works. It's about painting a picture of Jesus and his church. You aren't trying to make things work. Your marriage is supposed to paint a picture to the world. And it's a picture of something greater. It's a profound mystery. This profound mystery is that the creator of the world comes down to earth. And this creator loves his creation. This creator comes down and serves his creation. This creator is a servant. You see the mystery in that. It's a stunning picture. How could the son of God go through the cross for me? See, this is the picture that we display in our marriage. The point of marriage is to display this the gospel, this truth about God's love for humanity to the world. So if you're married, you don't get to pick your roles at home. God has given you a role in exposing his radical, sacrificial love to the world. And men, God has given you a leadership role. He has called you to lead as Christ led. And so we say, I show the world that I lead my family, but I lead like Christ. That is why it is so important for us to be obsessed with Jesus in the way he led. We declare that I'm submitted to laying my life, laying my rights down for my bride and bringing her to truth, always pointing her to truth, always pointing her to grace as Jesus did. So there goes condemnation in a critical spirit. I go all out in my love for her. I'm focused on love. I'm consumed with loving her. I'm consumed with her knowing that she's loved and she's valuable. I lead with humility. I lead my wife in repentance. I I confess and repent of my sins in front of her. Just like a general on a battlefield. In the olden days, you wanted to get your guys to hop over the wall when there was a, a volley of bullets coming at you? Guess what? You had to hop over the wall and wave your sword like a freaking idiot to get them to jump over the wall to follow you into that. Who's going to do that, right? But you rally the troops. and So men, we're to lead in this. You hop over the wall, you're the first to repent. We're the first to get right with God. Why? Because I want to paint a picture of Jesus Christ to the world. See, this is something bigger than just getting along and keeping peace. This is our life's purpose, that in relationships we image Christ. This is why we exist. This is why we're on the, on the earth. If you're on the earth and you're breathing, then God said there are people that should be worshiping me that don't. Go expose my love to them. Married couples, expose Jesus to your neighbors by the way that you love your wives and the way that you respect and submit to your husbands. So you're alive and married to put Jesus on display. And people will see and hopefully think, Wow, he's so in love with her. He's so enamored with her. And that the Holy Spirit would start tugging at them. Does God love me like that? As you're sharing the gospel with them, they can connect the love that we have for one another, the submission we have to one another, the supernatural, ridiculous, foolish love that we have for one another. They can connect that with this foolish idea that the creator of the universe stepped out of heaven Submitting himself to the cross, to a criminal's death for us. 
We display that radical love. That's the way people should be talking about us. That's the picture that we should paint. And so this morning, how do we respond to such a radical picture of marriage? How do, we ch- how do we possibly change and conform to this picture that Paul is painting? And I, I want to challenge this morning that single people, married people, wherever you are in life, that there's room for you to grow in this exhortation to love others like Jesus, to image Christ in our relationships. And first of all, how do we learn how Jesus loved the church? How can I be reminded of what I'm supposed to do? I often hear in counseling, people are like, man, you should come over for dinner sometime just so you could hear what happens, you know? And I'm like, there ain't no way I'm coming to your house for dinner. But, <laughs> but that idea that you want a reminder, that I, man, what you said, I wrote it down, but it just, it loses its impact. I just want you to like preach when we're at the table and, you know, which is like, no, that's not going to happen. But what needs to happen, man, listen to me. If you're sitting there and you're feeling condemned right now, open this book more. Spend some time in the Word. Spend some time getting yourself washed so that you can wash your wife in the Word. Listen, Christian, are you submitted to this book? Are you opening this and reading it? Are you trusting that God is leading you? Or is it just there's some good things for your life in there? We're to be completely submitted to the Word of God. You want to know how to act in marriage? Spend time with Jesus in His Word. Submit yourself to imitating Christ. And the second is be led by the Spirit. How on earth are you led by the Spirit? Well, that's what this whole passage has been about as Britt's been preaching on mutual submission and then the roles in marriage last week. How are you led by the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit leads us to imitate Christ. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. How do you lead a Spirit-led life? Submit yourself in relationships. You consider others more important than yourself. You think of ways, creative ways, to lift your wife up and encourage her. You think of of ways to serve her. You think of ways to lay your life down so that she might have more room in life. So that she might be able to see Christ more clearly by the way we sacrifice. It's not this like enigmatic thing. Like Paul is saying, live like Jesus lived. Love like Jesus loved. Act like Christ. Take a step of faith and pray, Holy Spirit, meet me in this sacrifice. And some of us need to just take an eraser and clean up our drawings, right? We need to like erase the hair off the lights. We need to make our ladders a little bigger. We need to make the wheels round, you know? You you see, yes, I love Jesus. I love my wife. But there's some huge, selfish, prideful areas in my heart that are destroying this picture that God is trying to paint to the world around me. And I need to take that and present it to God and be forgiven and cleansed of these things. And then I need to turn from that and pursue Christ in the way that I love my wife or in the way that I love my husband. And so this morning, I want to invite you to come up. Couples, come up. Take communion together. Come up and pray together. Come up and get on your knees together. This is a beautiful picture, a beautiful opportunity to come and grab the bread, dip it in the juice, and declare the death and the resurrection of Jesus until he comes together as a couple. 
And some of us have, have some sin. Some of us have some pride that we just need to confess to each other. And so as, we, as we're closing this chapter and stepping into a new one, let's not escape this mysterious, huge picture that our relationships are to image Christ. So let's come up this morning presenting ourselves to the Lord, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to meet us in our sacrifice as we worship God together. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for this beautiful picture that we have of this love that we're called to. And thank you, God, for your amazing love. Lord, I I feel compelled to pray against condemnation right now. Perhaps there are those of us that hear this and they feel condemned, like there's a big heavy weight, this big impossible thing that's required of them. Maybe relationally we're painted in a corner. I pray, God, that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own perceived abilities to change and fix our eyes on Jesus, who's seated in the heavenlies. Holy Spirit, come and make changes in our hearts today. Pray, God, that you would lead us to respond, that you would breathe life, Holy Spirit life, into marriages today. God, that the city of Carpinteria, Ventura, and Santa Barbara, the coastlands would see Jesus by the way we love one another. We love you, Lord. It's our joy to respond to you in worship. And we pray all these things for the glory of Jesus. Amen.